Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you're blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church or its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to connect.redchurch.org.au. So good to be with you this morning. Uh, you know, it's, it's a fun... I, I love Australia. I love coming here. I love the people, the culture. Uh, you are desperate for a move of God again. And um, one of the things that I know about God is he wants to do fresh moves of the Spirit. And I think your church seems to be one of these places that God wants to use. And so I'm excited to be here with you. I'm excited to see what God is going to do. Um, I, I came across your pastor sort of uh, accidentally. Um, in the U.S., um, you know, he's been pretty popular on podcasts. My dean, I teach in a seminary, and the dean of the seminary had come across Mark Sayers, and he said to me, you got to listen to this guy, he's brilliant. And so I listened to one of his things, and then the next thing I knew, Mark had posted on one of my books, and I'm like, hey, I got all kinds of emails, texts, Mark Sayers quoted you. And all the younger generation was like, oh, Mark Sayers quoted you, especially younger pastors, right? They're all like, wow, like you were known by Mark Sayers. So anyhow, I contacted him and just thanked him, and one thing led to another, and that led me here. And honestly, I was just trying to fly in to hang out with Mark for a day, and he's like, would you speak? I'm like, sure, and then he flew the coop, and he left me here with you, and so... Anyways, I'm glad to be with you, and next time I come, I hope to see Mark. <laughs> All right, I want to wrestle with you today about faith, okay? Uh, listen, faith's a big deal in the Bible. It's a big deal. There are things not happening in the kingdom right now because of our lack of faith. There are things that could happen that are not happening if we would believe at a higher level. Um, listen, let's just think biblically for a second. Do you realize there are only two times in the Bible where Jesus is amazed? One time, he is amazed at a centurion for his great faith. As a matter of fact, Jesus responds and says, uh, never in Israel have I seen such great faith, which is a rebuke to his disciples who were Israelis. And the other time Jesus is amazed is at his hometown for their lack of faith. Now, pause for a second. What that means, at least in part to me, is I have an opportunity to amaze Jesus either through great faith or no faith or very little faith. Not about you, but when I get to heaven, I don't want to have to amaze Jesus by my little tiny faith. So that means I want to, have to figure out how to develop faith. Lots of times in the church, you know, people say really helpful things like, you just need to believe. Thank you. I have read the book. I did realize faith was a big deal. My question is how? How do you develop your faith? Listen, everything in your walk with Jesus is developmental. You can develop intimacy, closeness with Jesus. You can develop in maturity. You can develop in wisdom, right? Well, you can develop in your faith. So what I wanna look at is kind of our part, God's part. How does faith get developed in you? And I want to start by telling you a story. This will be a bit of a testimonial kind of a talk because I'm just going to tell you flat out up front, faith hasn't always come easy to me. There have been times along my journey where my faith was weak and wobbly. 
And, uh, and that's just part of the journey. So I'm going to tell you about one of those times. 2012, I was wrestling with a question that I never thought I'd have to wrestle with in my life. And the question I was wrestling with is, does God lie? Um, context, I had been praying through four promises that God had given me. Listen, one of these promises, God spoke out loud, audible voice. I don't know, it just seems to me if God speaks out loud, he ought to do what he said. You know what I'm saying? That just seems like he ought to deliver. But there was years had gone by, years, and there was no progress on this thing. I had another promise God gave me, which was concerning revival. In this particular promise, God gave me a sign of a coming revival. The sign had come true, and there was zero progress towards renewal. As a matter of fact, in many ways, in the church that I was leading at that time, things were getting worse, not better. And I had all these promises. I'm praying through these promises. I mean, I'm fasting, like praying, laboring, and I'm getting nowhere. And finally, I got to the place where I'm wrestling deeply in my spirit with the question, does God lie? And I went to my wife one day and I said to her, listen, if I can't sort this out in my spirit, I can't keep doing what I'm doing. I can't stand up week after week and wrestle with this question internally and proclaim what I believe when I'm struggling so deeply. And um, I had to sort this thing out. And so I want to talk a little bit about how do you develop faith coming out of seasons where you're really disappointed, discouraged, wrestling with darkness like that. Listen, I'm just going to be super honest with you in this conversation, but I'm going to tell you right now, some of you are carrying loads of discouragement with God, and your hearts are a little bit closed off to God because you feel hurt, like God didn't deliver on something you thought he should deliver. I just want to tell you I've been there, and I want to tell you I've navigated my way through those seasons, and I want to share a little bit about what God's taught me along the way. Um, I want to start with a passage that isn't an easy one to swallow sometimes when it comes to developing faith, but super important. So would you look with me in the Bible at James chapter 1? And I'm looking at verses 2 through 5, and James, this, the brother of Jesus, writes this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, I'm just going to say, did you notice how counterintuitive that statement is? I mean, seriously, how many of you go through hardship, difficulty, trials, and tribulations, and your first response is, oh, yippee, God, please give me more? You know, this isn't normal. This is counterintuitive to human living. But, you know, one of the great things about the Bible is whenever God tells you to do something that's not normal for you to do, he always tells you why. And the very next word is because. He's answering the why question. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Parenthetical comment, but in a comfort-based society like most of the West, perseverance is greatly undervalued. Comfort is greatly overvalued. In the kingdom, it is reversed. He says, you ought to rejoice because the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and then there's this thing that perseverance accomplishes. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. Here's James thinking. He's saying, listen, if you go through testing, it will develop perseverance. When you go out at the other side of perseverance, you will develop maturity. You'll become like Jesus. You'll have wholeness. Your life will experience freedom and fullness, but you can't get there without the testing of your faith because the testing of your faith is what develops deep, robust trust in God. 
And if you're going to navigate dark seasons, you've got to have a robust faith, a deep faith. James goes on to add one thing. We always misquote this next verse, verse 5. We always quote it when you're going through a time where you need wisdom from God. And we always quote it about, you know, if you're making a life decision, you don't know what God wants you to do. If anyone lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. It'll be given to him. You can quote it that way if you want, but that has nothing to do with the context. The context, you're in a time of suffering. You do not know how that time of suffering could be redeemed by God to help you become mature and complete, whole, more like Jesus. You don't know what he's doing. You don't know what he's up to. You don't know how he's shaping you. Ask him for help. He's going to show you. When I suffer, this is what I do every time I face suffering. I literally pick up this passage in James chapter 1 and the passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and following, that promises us that God could redeem everything that comes into our life to make us like Jesus. He didn't say in that passage, he brings everything into your life. Listen, there are things that come into our lives that are not from the Lord, like abuse or rape. He didn't bring those things. Hear me, though, what he's saying. God is so good that even when God touches evil, he can bring good out of it in your life. If that doesn't bring you hope, you may not have a pulse today. That is like one of the most hopeful things I know in all the Bible. What James adds to that is this wisdom piece. He's saying when you're going through trials, difficulty, tribulation, if you don't know how God could redeem it to mature you, ask him. and He's going to give you wisdom. All right, so off of that, let me give you two thoughts about developing faith. The first thought about developing faith is this. If we're going to develop a deep, robust faith, we're going to have to pass the tests of life. The difficulties and trials and tribulations are going to have to be redeemed to make us more mature. So we're going to have to persevere through suffering with wisdom. And I want to give you really practical tips for persevering through suffering with wisdom. Um, I'm going to start with the first one that God has taught me. Here it is. Number one, ask the right question. The question we always ask in the time of suffering is, why? And God never answers that question. On top of that, for seasons of my life, when I was going through suffering and I was asking the why question, I noticed something. I would ask, why, God? Why is this happening? Why me? Why, you know, is this suffering taking place? And what I noticed is every time I asked why, it was actually undermining my faith. And I stopped asking the why question, which God never promised in Scripture to answer, and I started asking the how question which God promises to answer. How can you redeem this to make me more like Jesus? See, that's what he said he would answer. If you lack wisdom about how suffering could be redeemed to show you to become more like Jesus, you ask God, how? How can you redeem this? That's the one God has promised to answer is the how question. And so for me, literally, every time I go through times of suffering now, that's what I do. I lay on my face before the Lord, and I said, you promised you'd redeem this in my life. You show me how. Whatever you're doing to shape me, I'm going to say yes. I'm just going to surrender and say yes. Have your way, but show me what you're up to. And I have to tell you, even if I have to pray for six months, God has always answered the how question, but he's never answered the why question for me. That has helped me a ton. Ask the right question. Number two, 
If we're going to develop deep faith during these times of suffering, and we're going to pass the test, I think we have to understand the purpose of testing. You have to understand what God's up to. Um, James talks about this idea of asking God for wisdom, and he tells you that what God is up to is he's trying to use suffering, redeem it in your life to mature you, make you mature, complete, not lacking anything, so you become like Jesus, okay? Uh, I had a differential equations professor. I was uh, early on in life thinking about doing stuff in like math and that kind of stuff. And so I'd taken some high-level math courses, and which were fun. I enjoyed them, but didn't turn out to be much good as a pastor. But I, uh, I was taking this Diffie Q course, and the professor in the course was uh, such a unique professor. As a matter of fact, he was probably the first professor I ever had that actually understood the purpose of education. He walks in on the very first day of class, and he did something no other professor I've ever had ever did. He hands us two blocks of paper. The first package of paper is the syllabus. Every professor hands you the syllabus. But the second package of paper was the final exam. Never in my life have I ever had another professor hand me the final exam on the first day of the course. He looks at us, and this is what he says to us. He goes, this is going to be your final exam. He said, my job will be to teach you how to get all the right answers. He said, I do not want to grade on a bell curve where there's a certain amount of A's, a certain amount of B's, certain amount of C's, certain amount of F's, etc." He said, I want every single one of you to get an A. I thought, I knew I loved this professor. He's my favorite. And then he said to me, my job is to teach you how to get the right answers. Your job is to learn, do whatever it takes to learn so that you can get an A. And as I sat there, I thought to myself, you know, this is the first time I've ever had a professor that understands the purpose of education. The purpose of education is not so that the professor can display mastery. The purpose of education is so that the professor can impart mastery to the student. Listen, can I tell you something about God giving you tests in your life? He's the master teacher. He never gives you a test so you will fail. He only ever gives you a test so you can be imparted the mastery of kingdom living. That's his sole goal of testing. His goal is to help you get an A in the kingdom lifestyle. He never wants you to fail. He never wants to trick you. When I understood that that was the purpose of God, it actually changed me and the way I entered into suffering. And I started suffering a little more wisely because I realized God wasn't against me and he was for me. Um, Listen, uh, George Mueller, who was the guy that started an orphanage in England and cared for 10,000 orphans in his lifetime without ever asking for any money, just trusted God. And Mueller made this statement one time in his life. He said, the only way to learn strong faith is to endure great trials. This is a good line. Here's the bottom line. If we're going to develop deep faith, we're going to have to suffer wisely. This is a really critical idea. Um, I want to close the loop on the story I began telling you in the beginning about, you know, does God lie? Uh, One day, wrestling with this, I decided I was going to try to strengthen my own faith, you know, just uh, take some steps in a positive direction because I could feel my faith was kind of hanging on by a thread. So I turned to the Bible, to Hebrews chapter 11. It's the hall of faith, right? It's a story about all these guys. And the pattern is always the same. Here's the pattern in Hebrews chapter 11. God gives somebody a promise. They hold on to the promise, God delivers. That's the pattern. Over and over and over, you see this pattern. God gives somebody a promise, they hold on to the promise, 
God delivers, right? Now, hear me. Sometimes the promise has to be held on to for 25 years. Think of someone like Abraham, for example. He's had a promise from God that he's going to have a child, and 25 years goes by in this guy's life before the child comes. Now, I'm just going to tell you, you could read that in a paragraph, and it sounds like an easy 25-year spread. But when it's your 25 years that you're hanging on to a promise of God, there's a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and heartache in those 25 years. And I had been in a 10-year spell of holding on to promises that weren't coming true. And I picked up this passage, and I'm reading along, trying to encourage my faith, and I see the pattern. God promises, they hold on, God delivers. And, you know, there's encouragement in that, right? And I get to verse 32. And he says, what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised. And that's the key thing, right? They keep getting a promise, holding on, God delivers who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle, routed foreign armies, women received back their dead, raised to life again. I mean, come on, aren't these great stories? God promises, they hold on, God delivers. If only he stopped there. But he doesn't. He goes on in the next verse to say, there were others. No one wants to be among the others. Everybody wants to be in the first category. And then it's even worse. There were others who were tortured. Okay, no one wants to be in this category. Refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. Hear this line, you ready? These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. I read that that day, and I went, you do lie. You gave them a promise. You commended them for their faith. They held on just like everybody else held on, but you didn't deliver. And that's exactly what I'm feeling. And then I read the last verse. You should always read to the end. In verse 40, he says, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And that was the day I got it. Do you realize that God sometimes gives you a promise that he never intended for you? He intended for a future generation. But he gave you a promise because he entrusted you with it because he believed you had the character, the selflessness, the Christ-like attitude to be able to fight a battle for a promise for another generation and not make it all about you. And he entrusted you to it. And I thought that day, as I, lay, I just laid on the floor before the Lord, and I'd been fighting for revival my whole life, and he'd give me specific promises about it. There were signs about it, all kinds of stuff. And as I'm battling for revival, praying for revival, preaching towards revival, I'm getting creamed on every side. And I laid on the floor that day, and I said, Lord, I will fight for revival with my dying breath if I never see it for the sake of a future generation. 
And I tell you, everybody in this room that's younger than me, I have battled for revival for you. And the bottom line is, you know, that day I surrendered. I also made a covenant with God that day, and this was the covenant I made with the Lord. I will never take offense at you again. One of the things that happens to us when we're in seasons of darkness, if we don't process them with wisdom, we end up taking offense at God. When we take offense at God, we withdraw from God emotionally and spiritually. Our hearts become hardened by unprocessed pain in our lives. And this is why you've got to get to the place where you process those heartaches, those disappointments. And you've got to get to the place where you're willing to say to the Lord, I will battle for the promises you have given me in Scripture. And I will battle even if I don't see it for a future generation because I'm part of a kingdom family. It's not all about me. And that's part of what we have to do if we're going to develop deep faith. Let me give you one other thing to develop deep faith. If we're going to develop deep faith, not only do we need to process these disappointments, heartaches, suffering, persecution, all this kind of stuff well with wisdom, if we're going to develop deep faith, we also have to figure out how to feed our faith. We have to figure out how to feed our faith. Listen, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world that's going to starve your faith. You've got to figure out how to feed your faith. Think of faith for a second like a fire. You're throwing a log on the fire. You have to keep feeding the fire. If you stop feeding the fire, the fire dwindles. And you've got to figure out how to feed that fire of faith. Too often, we are too passive about the development of our own faith. And, you know, for my life, too often, that's what happened. Again, you know, the church even just says, you just have to believe. That's not helpful. I'm like, how do I develop faith? So let me give you a couple of thoughts about feeding your faith, okay? Really practical things. Number one, it really helps to recall your history with God. As a matter of fact, if I can rephrase that, I would record and recall my history with God. So I have had a lifelong habit of recording my encounters with God, my interactions with God, how God has answered prayer. I have a long history with God, which I got to tell you, helps me to face every new crisis. I'll give you two examples, but, you know, I went through a season early on in life where my wife didn't like me anymore. We were planning a church in the Boston area, and uh, she got to a place where she didn't like me. She was cold, distant. And in the middle of that season where we were going through a lot of marriage pain, um, I am alone with the Lord one day and I hear his voice and this is what the Lord said to me. I want you to thank me for this marriage crisis. I said to the Lord, listen, I'm still grateful for a lot of stuff in my life, but this ain't on my list. He said to me, one day you will be more grateful for this than almost everything that has come into your life. But that day it will take no faith to thank me for how I've redeemed it. The only way you get to exercise faith is on the front end before you've seen it be redeemed. And I'm asking you to give me thanks for what I am about to do that you cannot see. And that day, again, I laid on the floor and I said to the Lord, all right, I'm going to thank you. Now, listen, out of that marriage crisis came a whole bunch of lessons, which I recorded in a book called Soul Care. That book has literally changed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the planet. I do soul care conferences. I'm headed to Perth this week to do a soul care conference in Perth. And it's changed hundreds of thousands of people. Now, hear me for a second. Now, I can look at that and go, thank God, look at what he's done. But in the middle of the marriage crisis, God said to me, I want you to give me thanks today in faith for what I'm going to do one day. 
It took no faith to give thanks for how God has redeemed it today. It took faith to give thanks before any progress was taking place in our marriage. That's the nature of faith. And that history with God, now when I face a crisis, I remember that. I'm like, God, you redeemed that to create life change for hundreds of thousands of people. So I'm going to trust you in this one. Um, That ministry crisis I went through where I was preaching on revival, I was getting creamed. I mentioned that briefly. I mean, like I had somebody develop an imaginary Facebook page, friend everybody in the church, wrote against me every day. I had uh, blogs started against me. I had six radio shows in Boston done against me. And again, in the middle of that thing, I went one day, I'm alone with the Lord. I'm at the monastery. And I said to the Lord, "I, I, I just don't get it. I'm not complaining. I just don't understand. Just help me understand why the people are doing this. And I'm not like, why God, why me? I'm just like baffled. And I said, just help me understand. And I hear the Lord, and this is what he says to me. I'm answering your prayer. To which I then said to the Lord, I don't know what I'm praying, but if you tell me, I promise I'll stop. (laughs) Because whatever the heck I've been praying, that's not what I meant. And I hear the Lord, and he said to me, you've been battling for revival your whole life. You know that's part of your calling. You have been praying a prayer your whole life. Lord, give me the ability to impart your spirit. I had read the Gospels and the book of Acts, and I'd read history and the revivals that have taken place in history. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll literally see the apostles laying hands on people. People get healed, laying hands on people, and people get filled with the Holy Spirit, have encounters with God that radically transform their lives. And I'd been praying, Lord, give me the ability to impart your spirit like that if my character and intimacy can sustain it. And the Lord looked at me that day and he said to me, I'm answering your prayer. This is what it takes to have the character and intimacy that can sustain it. So I laid on the floor and I said to the Lord, then go ahead and answer my prayer. Listen, you need to know those beatings went on for another five years in my life. But out of that came a season of the supernatural power of God marking ministry like I had never seen. I mean, there was a hundredfold increase in supernatural power. And I got to tell you, I would gladly go through all of those attacks again for the sake of the kingdom. And that's where faith is often developed. Now I can look back at that season and I go, listen, God redeemed the hardship of marriage crisis to produce soul care, which produced life change. God redeemed the hardship of a ministry crisis where I'm being attacked to produce character in me, which allowed for a new flow of the Holy Spirit's power. And I look at that and I go, you know what? Whatever comes my way, God's got the ability to redeem it. That's part of my history. This is why you got to record and recall your history with God. Second thing, if you want to feed the fire of your faith, read the right books. Sometimes that means you need to get outside your faith tradition. Listen, one of the problems with the evangelical church sometimes is we have group think. We all think alike. Can I just tell you, if you only read people you already agree with, you're not growing very much? You already agree with them. They're not challenging you. You need to read some people that are outside some of your faith traditions. So I'll give you an example of my own journey. One of the things that was challenging me was I was seeing the healings that were taking place in the Gospels and the healings that were taking place in the book of Acts. And I realized that's really kingdom normal, 
right? But I wasn't seeing the level of healing in my own ministry that I was seeing in those places. And I started going after God and saying, we need fresh move of your spirit to produce a new level of healing. Listen, I'm just going to say something to you. You could just sort of wrestle with this idea, right? But in a pluralistic, syncretistic society where all deities are considered equal, only the unequal display of Jesus' power is going to convince people of the supremacy of Christ. And I'm telling you, I said, Lord, we've got to see this fresh release. This is what was going on in Corinth. This is what was going on in Ephesus. There was a, a release of supernatural power that was convincing these people who were pagan worshipers that Jesus was unique, different, and supreme to other deities. And I said, Lord, that's what we need. And so I'm seeking him. So I decided I got to read books on healing to increase my faith for healing. So, you know, I started with old timers like A.B. Simpson, who was the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance. That's a tribe I'm a part of. It, uh, you know, Andrew Murray wrote a book on divine healing, these kinds of people. I went to the moderns and I realized there weren't any moderns in the evangelical camp writing on healing. Listen, for whatever reason, the evangelicals have given more credit to the skeptic than they have to the faithful, which is anathema to Scripture. In the Gospels, the, the skeptics never get credit. It's the people of faith that get credit in Jesus' world, you know? And so I thought, I'm going to have to go outside my camp. So I picked up a bunch of charismatic Pentecostal types, and I'm reading their stuff. I'm just going to tell you, they have faith for this stuff. And I'm reading this stuff, and I'm going, this stuff's, you know, it's increasing my faith. It's good. I said to my wife, I said, you know, um, I, I got to get beyond just reading it. I need to have new levels of experience, which is the third thing. If you want to feed, and the last thing I'll talk about today, and that is if you want to feed the fire of faith, you're going to have to expose yourself to the right people and the right experiences. So for me, you know, I said to Jen, I, I need to go to a, uh, you know, like some of these conferences and stuff where they're actually doing healing, not just talking about it. And so I went to a few of them, and at the end of the day, I came back from one with her, and I said to her, yeah, this isn't doing it for me. I said, it's not enough to see somebody else pray for a person, they get healed. I need to be there in the midst. I need to pray and see people get healed. So I said, you know what? I need to take one of these missions trips with one of these guys who sees more healings than I've seen in one of these countries that sees more healing than we see in the U.S. And I said, that's what I need to do. Literally, five minutes after I said that to my wife, my phone buzzes. I pick up my phone. I look down and I get an email from a guy that I'd met one time in my life. He writes, I feel led by the Lord to send you and your entire family on a missions trip to Brazil, where they're seeing tremendous outpourings of the Spirit at that time, with Randy Clark, who maybe has seen more healings than anyone I know. And I'm like, very well, I accept. I mean, it seemed like an answer to prayer to me. I don't know. The guy sent me a check. I never met him. Sent me a check for $20,000. And so I took my family to Brazil. Listen, while I was in Brazil, one day I'm praying for a lady. She has osteoporosis. She's all bent over. She can't straighten up. She's in her 70s. I lay my hands on her and in Jesus' name, pray for healing. I mean, it was like a two-sentence prayer. And boom, she pops up. She's bending over, touching her toes after she couldn't move because she was stuck. I mean, you see something like that. I'm just going to tell you, it helps your faith. Last day when I was there in Brazil, I'm praying for a woman who had a tumor on her throat. 
you know, and where she was, she was 24 hours from a hospital. She had to take a boat ride, didn't have a car. They had to take a boat ride and then they had to do, you know, like walking and so on and so forth. Had to pay cash for any kind of surgery. They don't have the cash. Listen, at the end of the day, this lady either gets a miracle or she dies. And I'm just going to tell you, desperation is often the platform to breakthrough because it finally makes you believe and trust God alone. And she's in this place of desperation. She comes forward. She, I, I look in her eyes, and I'm telling you, I mean, I've never seen someone with that level of desperate faith. I put my hand right on her tumor, and just one prayer. This was my whole prayer. Go in Jesus' name. And that tumor shrunk, completely disappeared in Jesus' name. I'm just going to tell you, you see stuff like that, it changes you. If we're going to see the kingdom come, we're going to have to develop faith. And this is something that Jesus constantly commends people for. Woman, you have great faith, he says to the Syrophoenician woman. And so we have to develop faith. If we're going to develop faith, it means we need to suffer wisely. Let me say this in closing to some of you. Some of you have gone through a season where you've suffered and your heart has closed a bit towards God and you need to process. There's hurt. And you need to get to the place, if you're going to overcome the hurt, you've got to process it so you can get to deep trust again. And for some of you, you've been too passive in the development of your faith and you need to actually start to feed that fire of faith. So I'm just going to give you a moment alone with God, and then I'm going to pray for you. But why don't you just take a moment and just do business with God. If the Lord is speaking anything to you this morning, why don't you respond to what he's saying? And I will pray for you in a second. Sometimes, Lord, you know, life doesn't work out the way we hope. We're praying our hearts out about something, and, and then it doesn't turn out the way we had hoped, the way we thought, and we get disappointed. A lot of times, we end up accumulating disappointment in our souls, and our hearts grow a little bit hard towards you, a little bit distant. And unless we can process those disappointments and recover deep trust, we can't go into the deep kingdom life that you've called us into. So for some of us today, Lord, who are in that space, you know, they might not be wrestling, Father, with the question, do you lie? But they're wrestling with disappointment. And they need to unpack that. I pray you'd give them courage to go after it. Give them courage to talk about it. Give them courage to process it with you and others. And help them to find healing and freedom. 
that their faith might be strong and deep and robust. They don't hang on by a thread any longer. For others of us, Lord, and it's just, we're just too passive. Just waiting around for you to do stuff. And we need to actually start to say, hey, these are the promises of God, and I'm going to hold on to them. I'm going to build my faith and strengthen my faith and develop my faith and move forward in our spiritual journey. May we be those kinds of people so the kingdom would come to the glory of the king for the sake of all the people here in Australia who don't know you. They're never going to know you unless they see the kingdom around them. So may they see the kingdom through people like us. To the glory of the king, in Jesus' name, amen.